Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Lord God, we come before you recognizing that not only have you never failed any one of us, you've never failed. That's not a part of who you are. You are the Lord God over all things. And God, we can confidently say you've never failed us yet. You've never failed any of us as individuals. You've never failed your church. You've never failed at all at any point in time. And we give you thanks for that. We give you praise for that. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would be faithful to give us wisdom and understanding, that you would open up our eyes, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to your truth, and that we would hear your truth, we would receive your truth, and that you would transform us by it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, glad you're here this morning with us. And this morning, we are continuing our study of the book of Habakkuk. We have been in the book of Habakkuk for the last two weeks, if you've been joining us uh, either online or in person. And so we are continuing that today. If you're looking for the book of Habakkuk, the easiest way is to go to the book of Matthew and flip back into the Old Testament five books, and you will end up in the book of Habakkuk. Just to give you a little bit of background um, as we start, Habakkuk is a very short book, and it's, it's only three chapters long, but there's a lot in the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is writing, and he's writing concerning the southern kingdom of Judah. That's as we've looked at it the last two weeks. There was the kingdom of Israel to the north. There was the kingdom of Judah to the south. And Judah had rebelled against God. There was a number of things that, that Judah, the people of Judah, were not doing. They weren't obeying God. They were not following God's law. And Habakkuk was crying out to God and saying, God, how long is this going to go on? God, why don't you do something about your people who aren't living in obedience to you? And God says, I am going to do something. I'm going to send the Babylonians. I'm going to send this foreign nation and they will invade and they will take Judah captive and they will take them back to the land of Babylon and they will serve them there as slaves. And then we saw last week that Habakkuk says, wait a minute, God, now we're, we're bad, but they're worse. So how can you use people who are worse than your people to actually judge your people? And we talked about that last week. We talked about how God has a perfect plan and how we operate by faith, not by sight. And so today, what I want us to look at, I want us to look at when God responds to Habakkuk and he tells Habakkuk, this is what Babylon can expect. Now he's already laid out, this is what Judah can expect. Now he turns around and says, this is what I'm going to do to Babylon after this is all over. Now, last week we looked at this, and week before we touched on this. How long, that's a, a cry that Habakkuk voices to God. God, how long is this going to go on? How long before you do something and fix this? And we find that God says it's going to take a little bit of time, but be patient and wait on it. 
We find if you go back and you look, Habakkuk was probably written sometime around 230 B.C., around 230 years before the birth of Christ, somewhere in that vicinity. Babylon does not fall. That is, what we're talking about today does not happen until 539 B.C., which was like 81 years later. So it took 80-something years from the time that Habakkuk writes this to the time that Medo-Persia came in, another great people group came in and ruled over and defeated the Babylonians. So God is giving Habakkuk words about something that is going to occur some 80 years in the future. Habakkuk would probably never live to see that prophecy come true. Habakkuk may have died in captivity, never seeing what was going to happen. But God ultimately was going to bring judgment. And so today I want us to look at the painful reality of God's judgment. Now, a few things that we need to understand about judgment. One of the best ways I heard it explained was this. God's judgment is like a balance beam. It's like one of those old scales that has the balance beams. Now understand what I'm saying by this. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about you do enough good things and the good things outweigh the bad things at the end of your life. It's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about it in terms of God's judgment, of God's wrath upon sin. And sometimes God's wrath can come in the form of, uh, well, various things. You look through the Bible, you find God's wrath being poured out in all sorts of ways. But the way that I've heard this explained, and surely there are some exceptions, but the way I heard it explained was this. Imagine there's this bowl, and it is, it is there on one of those balance beams. It's suspended there on this balance beam. And every time a people group sin against God, it's as though God pours a little bit more of his wrath into that bowl. A little more of his wrath, a little more of his wrath, a little more of his wrath. And the bowl becomes heavier and heavier and heavier and starts to move downward as it is being filled. And the idea is that if that people recognize their sin and they repent, then God empties that bowl of wrath and it sort of resets. He doesn't pour out his wrath upon the people. He removes that wrath from that bowl and then it sort of resets. And then the people start sinning again and sinning against God without repentance. And that bowl begins to fill, 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 and it moves down, down, down. Well, in the absence of repentance, in the absence of a repentant reset, it reaches a point that the bowl is brimming. And also, this answers the question that people have sometimes. Why doesn't God just show up and do something about all this evil? God is allowing time for repentance. But at the same time, God's wrath is filling that bowl. So the longer the repentance lacks, the longer people are lacking repentance, the more full the bowl becomes. Until finally at the end, the bowl reaches that tipping point, and when God's wrath, the measure of God's wrath is full, it gets dumped out all at once. So what do the people do? What does God call them to multiple times all throughout the Bible? Repent, 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 repent. Now, I've had people ask me during this season, do you think that we are under judgment? I think we've been under judgment. I just think that most people haven't recognized it. I think we've been in a gradual sense of judgment in our nation, and people just haven't recognized that yet. And now I've heard other people say, well, we need to repent so we don't face judgment. Well, can I give you a, just a word? 
If that is the only motivation for repentance, if the sole motivation for repentance is, I want to repent so I can avoid judgment, that motivation is really no different than I'm really afraid to knock off that convenience store because I'm afraid I'm going to get arrested. The whole point is not, I'm going to repent to avoid judgment. For the child of God, it should be, I am going to repent because I am out of fellowship with God. It's not a matter of just avoiding judgment. It should be a matter of, this is harming my relationship, my fellowship with God. And so we find that throughout the Bible, you have temporal judgment, and then you have ultimate judgment. That ultimate judgment is that final judgment. And we find that that temporal judgment, the judgment that God sends upon peoples at t- from time to time, that judgment, it is both ex- exercised upon those who follow God and those who don't. And I know some people say, well, that doesn't make any sense. We just saw this in the book of Habakkuk. God is using the Babylonians to judge his people. He's sending the Babylonians to rule over them and take them captive to bring them back into right alignment with himself. I was talking to somebody here recently and they said, yeah, but that was in the Old Testament. Okay, God is still God, first of all, but since they begged it, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So Peter says, judgment's beginning at the house of God. We find that here in Habakkuk, judgment is beginning with Judah. And then later on, God's going to deal with Babylon. And so judgment begins with the house of God. Judgment begins as God gets his people right with himself. And so we find that mentioned all throughout Scripture. So with that in mind, though, what do we understand when we look at this passage in Habakkuk about the ultimate outcome that God says is going to be of those who do not follow God, and in this case, the Babylonians more specifically, who are rebelling against God, and God is going to use them to judge his people of Judah, and then he's going to turn around and he's going to judge the Babylonians for their sins. Now, I know we say, that doesn't make a lot of sense. God's people, Judah, they're good people, but they've gone astray. But God's not going to overlook their sin. He's going to bring discipline upon them in this form of judgment. This other nation comes in and takes them over and carts them off from their homes. And many of, many of those will die in exile. They'll never go back to Judah. They'll never see their home again. But God knows ultimately that's for the ultimate good of his people. And then he's going to turn around and judge Babylon for all of their deeds against Judah. And people say, that makes no sense. How can he do that? It's because he's God and God can do whatever he wants. And God has woven everything together in this perfect way as only he can do. So let's look at what's the outcome according to Habakkuk, according to God's word of these Babylonians as they attack the people of Judah. The first thing we find is this, the proud will be plundered. Look at verse five. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, that is the grave, death. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? 
and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. God says the proud will be plundered. These Babylonians were coming in and they were proud, they were arrogant, they were haughty, and they were coming in and they were seizing things that were not their own. And they were doing this again and again and again. And then they were making pledges. They had debtors and they were promising this nation this and promising this nation that. And then they were so proud they thought they're never going to collect. And they would just back off and they would just take and take and take and take and receive and receive and receive and receive and give nothing back. And God says the proud will be plundered. Notice what he says in verse 7. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. The proud will be plundered. This is what we find all throughout the Bible. That God works actively against proud people. In the book, in the book of James, talks about how God works against the proud and the word literally means that God arranges a military force against the prideful. He arranges a military action against the prideful. So God works to undermine pride. Someone reminded me this week of something that I'd said a long time ago and it was that you can, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a long fall from the back of a high horse. That's true. It is a long fall from the back of a high horse. So I always follow that up with, so Lord, saddle me a Shetland. So the fall will be a lot less painful. Stay low, get low, stay low. This is what we find throughout the word of God. We are to seek humility. Notice back in Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, we looked at this last week. Behold, his soul is puffed up. That is someone who is not following by faith. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. There is a contrast going on there. One person is living by his own understanding, by his own wisdom, by his own strength. His soul is puffed up. Therefore, because of that arrogance, his soul is not upright within him. It's not lined up in the right way. But the righteous shall live by his faith. We are to live in, with faith in God by our faith in God. Listen to Isaiah chapter 2 verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. God will bring all those things that oppose him, that stand against him, that stand against his word, that stand against his law. He will ultimately bring them into judgment. This is a wonderful truth because we can trust this. There is no permanently at large evil. There's no evil that will be permanently at large. Certainly Satan roves around today. Certainly we see evil in our world today, but there is no evil that is going to be permanently at large. But on the flip side, there's no true child of God who is without discipline. We have to understand that as well. Because it's a danger for us to say, that's right, God's gonna judge that. God's gonna bring that to judgment. God's gonna bring them down, absolutely. Absolutely, this is true. But let us also understand that if we are true children of God, we will experience the discipline of God 
to right us with himself. And so God will plunder the proud. We find an extension of this very prophecy found in the book of Jeremiah. I mentioned uh, last week and week before as well that Jeremiah and Habakkuk lived around the same time and they prophesied about the same thing. Jeremiah is a much longer treatment of the issue. But in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 29, Jeremiah prophesies, he writes down God's words, summon archers against Babylon, all those who bend the bow, encamp around her, let no one escape, repay her to her, for, to her deeds, repay her according to her deeds, do to her according to all she has done, for she has, here it is, she has proudly defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. She has proudly defied the Lord. The proud are brought low. That's what God says that the Babylonians can expect. Because of their pride, God's going to bring them low. Secondly, the greedy will lose all gain. Look at verse 9. Woe to him. Now you see these woes. I'm, we're just touching on every one of these woes. What, this is Habakkuk is writing in a traditional prophetic type utterance. The woe. Woe to you. Not woe as you would say woe to a horse, but W-O-E. Woe as in it's very, well, essentially, too bad for you, and uh, this is going to hurt, and this is coming, so be prepared. But woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shames for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. The greedy will lose all gain. These Babylonians were going in. They were taking over places. They were seizing people's lands. They were seizing people's goods. They were seizing people's homes. They were seizing people's property. They were seizing people's riches. And then they, in order to make themselves safe from invaders that might come against them, they were taking all of these ill-gotten gains and they were accumulating them. And then they were constructing homes and fortresses and walls and everything to keep what they stole safe. And God says the greedy lose all their gain. Notice verse 11. He says, the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Their very structures that they built in order to keep themselves and their spoil safe, the very structure them, themselves would cry out as witnesses against the evil of the Babylonians. The greedy will lose all gain. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 16, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. God says that's what's going to happen. The people who are greedy and they gain and they gain and they gain and they keep and they keep and they keep and they extort it from other people or steal it from other people and they get it by evil means. God says, I'm not going to overlook that. Now granted, it's years and years and years in the coming. But God says, I'm not going to overlook it. The greedy will lose all their gain. Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah again. Therefore, this is verse 16. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. And all who prey on you, I will make a prey. He's talking to his people. And he says, all these people who come against you, they're ultimately the same thing that they are doing to you. I'm going to turn around and have those same things occur to them from other people groups are going to come in and they're going to do the same thing. Why? Because of their greediness. And the greedy will lose all gain. So many times 
we, we hear people talk about gaining and everything they do in order to get gain. And, and a lot of times that gain, and there's nothing wrong with, with gaining things. There's nothing wrong with having possessions. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But whenever it's done at the expense of other people, and it's done in a way that displeases God. Now, I'm not talking about a lot of the things that we see in the news today and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the proposed legislation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about legitimately opposing the word of God in order to get gain and harming people intentionally in order to get gain and out of a sense of greed. One of these incredibly wealthy oil men from many, many years ago. Uh, I can't remember exactly which one it was. It may have been Rockefeller or somebody else, but they were talking, somebody was talking to him and he was at one point in time, at that point in time, in the top five richest men in the world, not just in America, but in the world. And he was asked by someone, by a reporter, how much is enough? And his response is, it's never enough. It's never enough. That greed always wants more and more and more and more. Operating from that sense of greed, there's always more and more and more. And God says that all that is stripped away for those who are gaining it at the expense, the sinful expense of others. And this is one of the things that he says toward the Babylonians. He says, the violent will see God's power. Look at verse 12. Woe to him, there it is again, woe, woe to him who builds a town with, with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples merely, label mere, labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Notice he says that those who build a town found a city on iniquity. And then he says, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire? Meaning these people, these enemies of God's people, they're building all these cities. They're building all these great towns. They're building all these fortresses. And God says, you're just laboring for the fire of my judgment to come and consume all of that. All those things that you are building, you're building them in the wrong way because you built them because of out of violence, you committed violence against other people, and you are going to see my power. You're working basically to feed the furnace that is coming. You're, you're piling up all your stuff in one place because it's all going to get burned up much more easily when it's all there together. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Just the Babylonians were going from place to place and constructing cities and towns and structures and fortresses and strongholds for their name, for their namesake, to make themselves known, to show their might, to show their power. God says, you ain't seen anything about power yet. I am going to cover the earth with my glory. My glory will be seen. In Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 58, thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad wall of Babylon shall be leveled to the ground and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The peoples labor for nothing and the nations weary themselves only for fire. It's the same idea, almost verbatim in Jeremiah. The people are laboring, they're working for what? To feed the fires of the coming judgment upon them. So again, what's the answer to this? Well, it's repentance as we talked about earlier. 
James talks about this in James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It's the same thing in the New Testament. It's the same idea. Those who have, had not paid the wages of the laborers who are mowing their fields and they've kept it back, defrauding them, the, the money that is due them. God says, and now you've accumulated all of this. You've accumulated all this by nefarious means. Well, that's the day's going to come that I'm going to judge that. Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God will show himself in that final day as being completely holy, completely right, completely just. And people are going to bow down and worship him as the one true God in true humility. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, we understand that God is going to reveal his power and his honor, and it's going to cover everything. And he will be seen. He will be seen for who he is. And I'm just going to tell you, I want to see him as closely and as nearly for who he is right now. I want to see him clearly. And one of the things about seeing God clearly is when you start to say, God, show me yourself. Show me who you are in your word. Show me who you are, God. He lots of times will begin by showing you just how unlike him you are. He does that to me a lot. God, I just want to see you. Well, first of all, before you want to see me clearly, you need to see you clearly in light of who I am. And God will give us an understanding of who we are and how, how short we fall. Sometimes we believe that we're a whole lot like, we're, we're much more like God at a given particular moment than we probably truly are. And we need to have that humility and approach God in the right way, recognizing that the day is going to come, that all the universe is going to see God exactly for who he is. God speaks to the Babylonians and he says, the drunken will drink a cup of shame. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your own fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Uncircumcision show that you are outside of the covenant of God. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in him. The drunken will drink a cup of shame. He's talking about the Babylonians going in and the Babylonians plying people with wine and with drink in order to take advantage of them. And God says, those who do that, he says, you're going to drink a cup of shame. Extorting other people or using other people in that way, he says, there's going to be a cup of shame that comes around. And just as you've urged people to drink this cup in order to take advantage of them, so too I am going to have you drink a cup of shame. In Jeremiah chapter 25, he's, uh, Jeremiah writes about Babylon and other nations as well. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk, and vomit fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you must 
drink. That's, that's hard stuff. That's, those are hard words. That God is saying he's going to bring around a cup of judgment, a cup of shame. And these nations that stand against him and that, that stand against his people and stand against his word and stand against his law, God's going to cause them to drink that cup of shame. One of the most frightening verses I've, I've seen in the Bible, and, and there are quite a few, but there's one that, that makes my top 10 list, and that's Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That is a terrifying verse. God has a cup of wine and it's well mixed and it's, it's foaming. God has stirred it up and agitated it. His wrath is so agitated it's like the, the wine is just frothed in the cup. And then God says they're going to drink it and they're going to drink it down to the dregs. That is every last drop of it they are going to drink. Even when they pour the wine in the cup and the sediment settles down to the bottom and maybe that sediment's got some bitterness to it and that last bit, that last swallow has that sediment from that wine left in it, that bitter part that some people would throw out back in ancient times and God says, oh, no, 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 no. As you go down in the cup, it's just going to get more and more and more bitter and you're going to drink it down to the very dregs, the very last drops, the most bitter part of that, the grainy, gritty part of that wine, the wicked are going to drain that as well. The drunken shall drink a cup of shame. And then finally, as if it could, as if that's not enough, finally you get to verse 18. And God says the idolater will face the living God. Look at verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The idolater will face the living God. Habakkuk echoes what we find multiple times in the Bible. Especially back in Jeremiah and Isaiah dealing with idolatry. The, the idol maker makes a dead thing, a lifeless thing, and then cries out to it. Makes an idol and then worships it. Makes an idol and says, arrive, or, arise, or speak, or save me, or perform some incredible act. But the idol can't do that because the idol's just an idol. And, and there, are other, there are many things we construct. Now, we may say, well, I, I've never constructed an idol. I don't have a, I don't have a, I don't have a, a, a stone face in my, in my home. I don't have some wooden sculpture out in the backyard that I burn incense to. I don't, I don't have some, some metal, some bronze or, or, or gold statuette that I have somewhere that, that I, I pray to. No, but there are lots of other idols that we have. The Bible talks about the idols of the heart. It doesn't have to be wood, clay, stone. It can be something we set up in our heart. Anything that we put on par with God or above God or trust instead of God or trust in addition to God is likely an idol. 
So we find that the adulterer will face the living God. Listen to Jeremiah 10 again. I know we keep going back to Jeremiah, but Jeremiah parallels this so well. Jeremiah 10, 14. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. My mother always told me, never say stupid. I didn't have the ESV at that time, but um, that's their translation. Every man is stupid and without knowledge, and every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. At the time of the punishment of the people, at the time of God's wrath, all those things that they, they clung to, all those things that they depended upon, all those idols they worshiped, they're all going to perish. They're all going to be gone because the idolater will face the living God. Verse 20 of Habakkuk, uh, verse, or chapter 2, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You see the contrast? You build an idol and you pray to it and you speak to it and you call out to it and it is silent. And then God says, I'm the living God. Not just the idol needs to remain silent. Everybody be silent because I'm the living God over all things. Psalm 135 verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. We find that the psalmist writes and says, if you trust in an idol, you become like the idol. You'll become, you become wordless, powerless, silent, ultimately before the Lord God of the universe. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, we find this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. If we cling to an idol, we're forsaking our only hope of steadfast love. And then we find in Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He is seated in the heavenly places. This is why we find the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Zechariah 2, 13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God is a holy God. And God is seated on his throne. Even in the midst, and we'll talk more about this next week, even in the midst of the judgment that is coming upon Judah, and even in the judgment that is coming upon Babylon for coming against Judah, God is still on his throne. Now, God doesn't leave it there. God looks ahead and he talks about when everything is going to be set right. Now, next week, join us because next week we're going to talk about what is our response whenever we are facing not only that temporal judgment of God, but we're looking at the hard things of God. What is our response? Notice this, this hint of promise, not even a hint, a very firm promise that God gives to his people in Isaiah 14, verse 3. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that rule the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Isaiah records when the day comes that God sets it all right and God is going to set it right with Babylon. And by extension, God, all of God's people, 
and any people who come against God's people. Remember, judgment begins at the house of the Lord, meaning God's going to judge his people. God's going to bring temporal judgment and temporal discipline upon his people, get them right with him. But then God is going to bring that, that final judgment upon those who refuse to repent. He's going to bring the final judgment upon those who refuse to follow him. And in that day, in that day when he restores everything, the whole earth is at rest and quiet and they break forth into singing. Whether a people group, and you've heard me say this before, and I'm going to say it again as we close. Whether a people group is ripe for revival or ripe for judgment depends upon that people group's willingness to repent. That's what it hinges upon. Whether a nation is ripe for judgment or ripe for revival depends upon its willingness to repent. My prayer over the last few months has been that we as a nation would repent. And if judgment begins at the house of the Lord, the question is, what's going on in our hearts? In a couple of weeks, I'm going to do a sermon. After we get done with Habakkuk, I'm doing a sermon about the things I've learned about the American church during COVID-19. There are some really good things. There are some really, really hard things too. And one of the things that as I, as I look at this, I see a lot of people pointing a lot of fingers toward the Babylons of the world. But we haven't considered that we're sitting in the place of Judah and that we need to repent before our God for the sins of, of us. We don't repent for the sins of Babylon. Babylon is Babylon. But we do repent for our sins as a people. We should. And so with that in mind, the question remains, where are you and God? Where are you and God? How is it between you and him? How's your walk with him? How is your humility before him? How is, what's your pride check before him? When you're going before God, what's, what's going on in your heart with a heart of worship? Are you going in him for worship? Are you going before him? What's standing in the way of your worship? I heard people say like, well, this mask is standing in my way of worship. I can't worship with this mask on. I, you got hard times coming when persecution really comes. If that stands in your way and that derails you, hey, if you, faint, if you faint in the day of adversity, your faith is small. We can add whatever we want in there. If, if you have a fit about this or that in the day of adversity, your faith is small. This has been a very revealing time for the church in America. Very, very revealing. And it's shown me, church in America ain't ready for persecution. She ain't ready. She'll fold up, as my friend said, she'll fold up like a cheap paper plate at a church potluck. I mean, it, it's... She will. She ain't ready. As a whole, she ain't ready. All right? But the question remains, where, where are you standing before God? What is going on in your heart before God? Where are you with God? And I know I've heard lots of people here, and we've, we've talked about like, well, but, but what about these people? And they're not right with God, and they're not right with God, and they're not right with God. Okay, okay, I get that. I get that. I get that. I get that. And they need the gospel, and we need to share the gospel. We are standing before God. Each one of us will stand before God on that day, and we will give an account. Each one of us, each one of us. I'm not going to stand before God, and God's not going to say, what'd you do about Portland? I'm not, he's not going to say that. What'd you, do about, what'd, you do, what'd you do about New York? What'd you do about this? What'd you do about this? I mean, I'm not going to be held accountable for that. I'm held accountable for me, me and mine, my family. So where is it that you stand before God today? 
God's judgment is real. Absolutely. And if you're here today, or you're maybe you're watching or listening and you say, I've, I've never made a decision of faith. I've never made a decision to follow God. I don't think I have anything to worry about. Can I just tell you? No one gets away with anything. Jesus took the penalty of our sin upon the cross. And if we do not trust him as the one who received that penalty upon the cross for us, then we will bear it ourselves. No one ultimately gets away with anything. Jesus took our sins. He took the pain of our sins. He took the wrath of his father upon himself for our sins. So it's not that we got away with it. No, he took it. He took it. God cannot ignore sin in his people or in people who aren't his people. God always, always, always does what is right and what is good and what is holy. And one day the whole earth will be full of his glory. And we look forward to that day when it comes. And we want to be prepared now for everything he has for us. Not just then, but now. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come before you, we're humbled. We're humbled, Lord God, that you are a holy God. You are a perfect God. And you're a loving God. You're a merciful God. You're a just God. You're a gracious God. And no one gets away with anything. God, there is no free ride. It cost Jesus his life. It's a free gift, but it came at that cost. So, Father, I pray that we as your people, recognizing the great cost that you paid so that we might have the opportunity for redemption, would not take that lightly. Father, you didn't bring us into your family to just give us fire insurance on that last day. You brought us into your family to live for you right here, right now, and be conformed to the image of your son. And Father, anything that stands in the way of that occurring is standing in the way of you. And the longer we allow it to go on, we understand that you'll bring discipline. So, Father, give us hearts that are quick to repent. Father, we want to surrender completely to you. Father, none of us have arrived. I've not arrived. No one here has arrived. None of us. The Apostle Paul has said, I have not yet obtained. Father, we can know for certain that we're not anywhere near reaching that point where we're made perfect right now, right here. Father, we wrestle, we sin, we struggle. Father, you're over all. You rule over all. You're a good God. And so, Father, we're, we're sobered as we read your word as to the judgment that comes upon those who stand against you. And, Father, we're sobered as we consider that you didn't spare temporal judgment upon your people in order to bring them in alignment with you. You brought judgment upon the Babylonians just to get glory and to show that you're a just God. You brought temporal judgment in the form of discipline upon the people of Judah in order to get the glory and to show that you are a just, merciful God. And so, Father, we pray now that if there's anything in each of our individual hearts that we need to lay before you 
And we need to say, Lord God, I repent. I'm sorry. God, forgive me. God, I'm surrendering this to you. Father, I pray today would be the day that we would do that. Whether it's here at the altar or where we're standing, God, whatever it is, may we be quick to repent. Not not only because we don't want to be disciplined, but Lord, ultimately because we recognize that through that repentance, we can experience revival. Through that repentance, we can experience a restored fellowship with you. Father, may we desire that far, far more than we just desire to avoid pain. Father, may we run after you regardless of the cost. Father, I pray for anybody listening, anybody watching, anybody here who's never made a decision to follow you. And Father, I pray today would be the day they would say yes to you. They would say yes to Jesus, recognizing that their sins have separated them from you and that Jesus provided a way. If we trust in him, surrender and place our faith in him and receive that forgiveness of our sins from him, we will be saved, we will be brought into your family, and we will be given an eternal home with you, and then you begin to transform us here and now into the image of Christ. Father, we give you thanks for that promise. And we pray during this time, Father, as we respond, that you would be honored and you'd be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.